Okay. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm Sarah Jessica, and this is Hot Shots. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode. Uh, today, I am talking to a very cool guest. Uh, this is Graham Caldwell, and he... Oh, please. <laughs> he is a uh, Toronto-based musician, animator, and online content creator. Uh, and you can find Graham online at Graham is Tearing Up on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. And you can also find his music on Spotify under both his two projects. Projects, Billy Moon and Tearing Up. So, hey, Graham. Howdy. Thank you so much for joining me. This is going to be fun. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. It's weird to talk to somebody you've never actually met. Um, uh, we connected through uh, a cousin of mine. Uh, uh, yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So, interesting little meet there. Um, but I guess just to kind of um, introduce you to everybody, I'm just going to ask some background questions. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Alora, Ontario. Mm. So if anybody knows where that is, well, I, I grew up outside of Alora, actually. I grew up on, um, I guess, like you could call it a country estate or right. a farm um, about 10 minutes outside of Alora, which is about 20 minutes north of Guelph. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a small town boy mm-hmm. at heart, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I grew up in uh, uh, Beamsville, Ontario, mm-hmm. if you've ever heard of that. I believe isn't there there's a there's a fall fair there, Beamsville Fair? Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's our, our one claim to fame. Uh yeah. it's very much a town that you drive through to get other places. Yeah. Um, um yeah. 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 <laughs> totally similar. Uh what kind of music or art did you grow up around? Like what did your family play around the house? What were those sort of um influences growing up? Um, I would say that it was a big mix. My dad was really the musical one. Um, so I'm trying to, yeah, that's an interesting question. Cause I'm, cause immediately when I think of like musical influences, I think of when I started getting into like, you know, pop punk and stuff like that when I was yeah. in, uh, like sixth grade for like mm-hmm. around that time. Um, but I'd say that my earliest experiences of music were probably, yeah, it would have been my parents singing to me or uh, would have been going to church. Actually, there was a church really close to uh, the house that I grew up in. Um, it was a United Church, which for those who don't know is like the, how should I, how can I even describe it? It is a very watered down version of Christianity. United hmm. United is very... Uh, like, I don't know if there's more politics about it that I should be aware of, but uh, in my experience, mm-hmm. United is very watered down. Um, and yeah, I would sing. I, I, I had sung in church a couple times. Um, my, my dad sang in a choir. Uh, he sang in the University of Guelph Choir as uh, he was he was a student doc. Like he was a doctor there mm-hmm. on the campus. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, he participated in the uh, sort of university employee choir. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, yeah, as I got older, like the first CD I'd say I was that was ever purchased sort of on my behalf was this compilation called Boy Power. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever <laughs> heard of it, but it was like, it was this mix of like boy bands because um, uh, like Backstreet Boys, Aaron Carter, LL Cool J, something like a phenomenon was on there. I recently, I, I looked it up again as I, cause you know, like I would, I would listen to that thing constantly. Yeah. And then uh, the one that I was, the second one I sort of purchased on, you know, give me $20 and I'll buy this at Zeller's was some 41's all killer, no filler. Mm. So, 
yeah, I kind of think those have probably played a bit of a bigger role in my life. Absolutely. <laughs> in terms yeah. of writing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I recognize that. I feel like I had the flip side where I had the girl power CDs growing oh, up. Oh, yeah. You know, a yeah. lot of Avril, a lot of Pink, a lot of, you know, you know, those those types. That's funny. Oh, yeah. Underra- underrated, though. Oh, Avril, Avril Lavigne's Let Go is a is a pretty good record. There's oh, some iconic. very good there's some very good songs on it. Oh yeah. Um who was the first artist that spoke to you? That's a little that's uh that's interesting. Um hmm. hmm. Spoke to me. I feel like I don't know exact I feel like I was probably one of those kids that like demanded to be taken seriously. Hmm. Like, you know, that loved impressing adults. Mm-hmm. So I sort of got into politics in fourth grade. And this is like during the Bush era. That's very young. So I feel, yeah, I, I mean, you know, like you're watching E-Bombs World videos of like time to the bomb Saddam song, like that just <laughs> insane era of uh, online political content. And mm-hmm. I remember buying the Rock Against Bush sampler. Um, if you, if anybody remembers this, it was, a, it had two volumes and it was all these punk bands. So like like Sum 41 was on it. Newfound Glory, Less Than Jake. Billy, Bra- Billy Bragg sings with Less Than Jake on the version that I have, actually. And I, I absolutely love Billy Bragg um, against me. But it was put out by Fat Records. And at that time, like, I don't know. It might have been the Tony Hawk games or something. But like, I, I started getting really into NoFX. Mm-hmm. And I'd say that being this young kid... <laughs> you know, who's just getting into politics, no FX is like war on errorism mm-hmm. was a, was kind of an influential record for me. I mean, like the songwriting on it is actually great. I think, I think no FX are a pr- are pretty solid band and were pretty influential to me <laughs> as, yeah. as funny as that is. It's, it's not the music I really listen to now, but they were a pretty important band for me, like sure. growing up. Yeah. Yeah. When did you first become interested in creating music as opposed to just listening to it? Oh, I mean, I think I, I think I always thought of myself as someone who wanted to create music. Mm-hmm. Like my first guitar teacher was my fourth grade teacher. Yeah. Um, and I started, I remember I wrote, Frig, I remember the first song I wrote. It was just a really simple like boom, boom. Boom, 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 mm-hmm. bang. Yeah, it was just this little tiny riff. Um, and yeah, I was, yeah, and I was, that would have been like fourth, fifth grade. And then I just remember when high school came around, like when I was in grade nine, the first thing I thought is like, okay, I have to start a band. Yeah. Like it wasn't even a question. It's like, we start a band. Like that's yeah. what you do. So um, yeah, and just kind of continued along that path. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of been like a really, gu- it's kind of like it was always kind of a guiding thing for me just any any new any new situation for a long time it's like all right like where who can i jam with who can i play with who wants to make music together yeah how was that first band experience it wasn't bad uh it was pretty good i mean i'm still close with uh i'm still close with a guy who uh was the drummer he's a fairly accomplished producer in his own right right now he just worked Mm. on the new mother tongues album Oh, awesome. um, he has a credit on the some of the Blast Born Ruffians records. Hmm. Um, yeah, Asher Gould. Uh, he, yeah, he and I really uh, sort of influenced each other in terms of like our our musical journeys from mm-hmm. high school. And then I'd say 
you know, more, more guys come in and, uh, great, great dudes. Although it is, it is funny because like very early on you, you start to, you really start to pick up on band drama. Yeah. So many, like the, what is it? If you ever want to hate all of your friends, wonder what the hell you've done with your entire life, just start a band, just Mm -hmm. start a band and it'll naturally just trickle Mm -hmm. out. And all of a sudden you're like, you're wondering, you find yourself uh, contemplating all of the choices you've made that have brought you to this point. Oh yeah. But it was, uh, it was overall a great experience and I made a lot of, I'd say really solid connections with people. Good. That. Good. Yeah. What kind of music were you making back then? Oh, like I was a massive Born Ruffians fan in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd say a lot of it was sort of the jingle jangle, like indie pop of the mid aughts. So yeah. like, you know, Vampire Weekend. But I was also kind of like loved the feeling of just like a guitar and a drummer, like that style of like garage, sort of like White Stripes or mm-hmm. uh, Black Keys. Yeah. Um, and yeah so i'd say there was this mix of just like indie pop but like elements of garage in there as well um i don't know like a funk song thrown in there too i mean when you start you know when you start writing songs you find yourself writing like what you don't necessarily write an aesthetic you just write what you can write so if you hear something and it works you're like okay let's work on that Mm -hmm. but i I think for a lot of people as they get older it's like okay well we want to sound like this or we want this to be our sound or we want this to have a particular feel so you start becoming a little more um discriminative in Mm -hmm. uh in like what songs you're going to write and what you're going to perform absolutely or discriminatory Um, yeah or you know more um uh more specific yeah um yeah 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 absolutely um did you say you started on the guitar? Was that like the first instrument that you picked up? Oh no, I started playing piano. Those were okay. my first. That was my first instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I continued with piano. I miss playing it, in, in mm-hmm. some ways, uh, I got my grade eight practical, I think, and my grade seven theory when I was in high school, and then I just kind of stopped mm-hmm. playing. But uh, piano, I find, is really good for understanding music theory. Yeah. So yeah. it's a really good instrument to learn how to play if you want to know how to write your own songs and write chords, understand keys, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Hey, is there any reason why you uh, haven't picked piano back up? Do you think that's something you'd want to do in the future? I mean, if I like I can still, quote unquote, play piano, I still understand mm-hmm. the the process of it. Um, I, I, I'd say it's mostly just a time constraint. And yeah. I'm so used to writing on a guitar. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I've, been, I've been like writing some new songs and I'd love to, you know, maybe write a piano record at some point, start mm-hmm. writing piano songs again. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, really, I think it's just sort of the learning curve. If I were to start playing piano again, I, I'd, I'd like to, you know, get some lessons and just get my chops back up. Mm-hmm. Totally kind of fine tune it. I mean, they're very different beasts, the guitar oh, and the piano. Yeah. yeah. That's, but that, but that's the beauty of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I love Rufus Wainwright. Actually, he's an incredible songwriter. Yeah. And, you know, just hearing, like, what he can do with a melody or the way or the places he'll take a song, I find that uh, the piano lends itself to that a lot better than a guitar. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. Um when did you start creating music under the name Billy Moon? And how would you describe that project's sound and style? I started doing Billy Moon when I was in, I think I really, like just the beginning, the very, um, 
budding, the beginning, the the first bud was in first year university mm-hmm. where I would just kind of, you know, sit down in my dorm room with my laptop and, you know, just try to figure out, <laughs> figure out how to record and what to do. Mm-hmm. And eventually I put out this for this EP. It's gone. It's, you know, I'm not, it was good. I, I called it shitty rock and roll. <laughs> and it was just meant to be like noisy and garagey. I was real. I was getting into waves and Ty Seagal a lot at that time too. Mm-hmm. And then um, that kind of evolved a little bit because I like I I, lo- I love pop songs. I love pop songwriting. Yeah. And when I first heard Mac DeMarco's stuff, and I oh gosh, like it, I kind of roll my eyes at it because like he's become this absolute icon, mm-hmm. you know, since that time. But mm-hmm. uh, when I first heard him, and then checked out Makeout Videotape, so that was his project before. Yeah. I, I just heard it going like, this is what I want to do. Like this, hmm. you know, like honestly, like if you get the chance to listen to make out videotape, like do it. It's just really well-crafted pop songs that mm. are just like dirty and grungy. And uh, yeah, they, it, they, they just work so well. Cool. I'll check it out. Yeah. So that yeah. was kind of, that was kind of an essence, like what I was kind of trying to do with Billy Moon that started out as a mm. duo. And then, Eventually, I ended up adding more members and the sound uh, started evolving. And eventually, like where we get to tearing up, um, I was I, I was just kind of in a space like the, like I had been touring as Billy Moon all through like 2019. Mm-hmm. And I don't even I hesitate to call it touring because, you know, um, I'm not not to name. Well, I was I was talking to a, fr- a friend of mine who plays in a band that actually tours <laughs> that, right. that, that seriously tours. And, sure. we, and uh, we were like off and on for like pretty much the whole year mm-hmm. um, did did like two, three, three week runs uh, through the States, one in the spring, one in October, and then a couple cool. of like, you know, 10 day or like weekend runs in between over the summer. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, I was really burnt out. Yeah. Like I just found myself thinking, oh, okay. Like, like there was a moment, uh, like after I got back at the end of like November in 2019, where I had this strange feeling of like, oh, I don't have to do anything right now. Like, what the hell do I do? Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. And I told myself that after the holidays, once January came around, I was probably going to be ready to go back out on the road. <laughs> good timing yeah i know and then but once but once january hit i i was dreading it i'm like i don't i don't want to do it i don't want to rent a van and drive down to like it was either going to be north carolina or austin you know to play one festival and then like a couple of other sideshows and my experience has been you when you're touring a lot of your time is going to be spent driving eight hours to play for as many people. Yeah. So it, you know, if you don't have, um, if you don't have the sort of morale boosting shows that happen, you know, hopefully between the Thursday and the Saturday, Mm -hmm. you can, you can find yourself in some rough situations. (laughs) Yeah. And I I just, I, I was kind of getting to a point where I thought, you know what, I'm not sure how much longer I want to do this. You know, I I had put a lot of money into it. It had been like, you know, eight years of my life and I have other skills. You know, I'd been working as an animator. I I had always kind of thought about returning to grad school. uh, And I thought, you know, maybe, maybe this might be a decent time to start thinking about other things. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So that's kind of that's kind of the position I was in mm-hmm. over the course of the pandemic. And uh because we had recorded everything in 2019, that you know, 2020 was kind of spent, you know, mixing and mastering the records. And now th- that things have kind of, I don't know, things have kind of opened up again. Um and just there was also this sense of like, you know, I've kind of been sitting on this for like two years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I just need this out for my own sanity. Yeah. I just I just need to actually show what I've been people like show people what I've been working on. Mm-hmm. So that's that's basically the situation I'm in right now. And so far mm-hmm. the reaction's been good. So I'm Amazing. I'm just I'm just happy that people are able to hear these songs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how would you compare Billy Moon's style to Tearing Up style? I mean, I wrote all the songs as Billy. Yeah. Um, so there was a sense of, you know, it, like the tearing up would have just been a continuation of Billy Moon. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm somebody who always, like I always kind of believe in writing personal stories. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm definitely a hard on my sleeve kind of person. Yeah. So I would say... If there is a difference, I, I, I'm trying to just talk about how the songs that I'm writing really are uh, personal. Like they mm-hmm. they are like connected to who I am and what my experiences have been. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, and I didn't really do this as Billy Moon, um, but you know, as opposed to playing a character, as opposed to telling a fictional story to illustrate some greater truth or something like that i i don't Mm -hmm. know i just i just wanted i wanted tearing up to um be able to be able to say you know this is who i am Mm -hmm. and i had been performing as billy for so long it does feel weird to like introduce myself as graham (laughs) to uh, when when i'm meeting new people in like a a professional context people still call Mm -hmm. me billy too so yeah yeah (laughs) i think multiple names is cool yeah i don't know it is what it is (laughs) <laughs> so would you say that tearing up, would you say that is Graham speaking then? I, I kind of thought of it for a long time as Billy mm-hmm. performs the songs and Graham writes the songs, mm-hmm. but now tearing up is, uh, it, Graham's performing them now. Mm-hmm. So I'd say okay. that that's, I'd say that's kind of what the root of it is. Would you say that's progress for you? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely moving forward. Mm-hmm. So it feels yeah. like a positive change. Yeah. So Yeah. Um, how was Billy Moon born and um, and why did you create that that stage presence of Billy? I just remember going to some shows. I, oh, man. And I, I just hated how fucking boring so many bands were. <laughs> yeah. And I'm definitely someone who watches shows. Like, like I'm a very analytical or uh, for this, like critical person. I'm, I'm self, I'm very self-critical, but like... Yeah, you know, I, I watch I watch so many bands play, and I will I'll, I'll have some thoughts, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I was talking to someone about this last night. It's like I can be ver- I can be very like critical of certain things, but I'm I'm also incredibly passionate about things that I, that I love. It's Absolutely. like, man, you're so yeah. negative. It's like, yeah, but like, get me talking about something I like. Yeah. Stand back. I'm yeah. about to feel a lot of feelings. Um, no, it's a, it's like two sides of the same coin. Yeah, you can't really be one without the other. Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't. Know. It's it, you know you you do want to watch it. Like no one no one wants to be a Debbie Downer, but no. the the root of Billy was just like I loved the uh, I, you know I just loved like watching 
like wild performances and watching like people make use like fully use their opportunity to perform and mm-hmm. um kind of i don't know spit spit a little venom out into mm-hmm. the crowd like I, i'd say one of the one of the influences was probably piss jeans mm-hmm. um i don't know if you if you're familiar with them they're an, they're oh, they're an awesome like i guess you call them like a hardcore like a sludgy band uh they're on sub pop they're like 40 year old dudes who sing about like office politics and toxic masculinity (laughs) and over some of the gnarliest like jesus lizard style riffs cool and uh, there's a video of the lead singer matt corvette uh, doing an interview at some like german festival and he's got a broken nose and he's like yeah i was trying to bench press a speaker and it slipped (laughs) out of my hand and you and you see it he's on stage and he's holding one of the monitors and it just slips bam and then and you just keep going you know like like uh, seeing like fucked up Uh, i never saw them in this era but like that was the era when damian abraham was like hitting himself in the head with a mic until he bled yeah so he'd have the you know so he'd be performing and he's had this blood dripping down his face and it just looked so incredible like Mm -hmm. you know just this um yeah like i i almost want to say like inhuman or like Mm -hmm. post-human because it it's this idea of like becoming the art, becoming the performance. And it's interesting because mm-hmm. in that same Matt Corvette interview, he, he talks about how like people watch me perform and they think I'm actually feeling it. Like, dude, like I'm, I'm like a juggler. I'm a performer. It's a performance. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that also appealed to me. Hmm. So Billy kind of came from that uh, sense of, well, if you want to perform, then perform. <laughs> so, yeah. um, yeah, it was kind of it. It was kind of based out of that, and sure. I and I kind of imagined Billy as this sort of uh, like a like I like to think I loved Calvin and Hobbes books growing up, so I I always yeah. imagined Billy as like what if Calvin had to shoot Hobbes because Hobbes got rabies or something, <laughs> and like what kind of person would Calvin become without his imaginary friend? Yeah, and uh, that was kind of the that to me that was kind of a way to describe the <laughs> the character of Billy. Sure. Did you ever make yourself bleed on stage as Billy? I mean, I wasn't that wild. No, I wasn't. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm a little baby. I'm a little wimp. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm trying to think of like you know what's the what are the wild antics I would do. I mean, I don't know. I'd mostly just like crawl around on stage. Mm-hmm. If I saw something, if I saw something that looked cool, I'd want to do it. Like, um, but you know, I'd say nothing. I don't know, man. I'm not like what is it like. Eddie Vedder, there's videos of him doing these absolutely bonkers stage climbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was trying to think of another example. Or, I, you know, like, I don't know, like watching Nirvana, the when the Nirvana played the VMAs and Chris Novoselic mm-hmm. hits himself in the face with his bass. Like, yeah. you know, never really, never really went that far. Mm-hmm. But always mm-hmm. tried to, but always tried to, you know, stand on the amp, jump around, throw yourself into the crowd if they want you to. Like, sure. you know, just have fun. Totally. Yeah. Uh, did you find that Billy, did Billy help with like maybe some performance anxiety that you had? I'd say part of me wants to say no, cause I was okay. always used to performing, but at the same time, I'm going to say yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it just kind of a lot. I mean, even like, I never really thought of it that way, but my mm-hmm. friends would say like, it was interesting watching, um, the switch flip. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, mm-hmm. we could see you get into character. And mm-hmm. you would just turn into Billy, and uh, mm-hmm. 
I, I you know, I, and I, I look back at that and I could definitely, I could definitely feel it, you know? Yeah. You, you, you can, you can feel this, this character inhabiting you and you start becoming this other, this other being, this other sense of self. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say in terms of performance anxiety, I mean, I don't know. It was just, it was a little bit of a car. It was the, I don't know. I just, I felt like it kind of gave me carte blanche. I could just say whatever I wanted on stage. Sure. And just like chalk it up to being a character. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know. And now that you are performing as Graham under Tearing Up, do you find that maybe you have a bit more confidence to say and do whatever you want? I mean, I probably, I want to take some more accountability to what I do. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it definitely, like actually saying it's me, it's actually using my own name means I sort of have to sign off on the things that I say. And true, not necessarily... I'm definitely somebody who acts like they don't want to take themselves too seriously, but I definitely take myself seriously, unfortunately. So I mm-hmm. got to deal with that. Bi- yeah, Billy, Billy, Billy allowed me to not take it so quote unquote seriously, but yeah. you know, I, mo- most artists do, mm-hmm. you know, I'd say most people do. It's always healthy to have a good balance, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when did you start creating content online and uh what platform came first i think i i oh man like the first stuff i ever did would have just been on youtube mm-hmm. there's this video i mean i don't know if anyone's gonna find it but like i remember did you ever remember the movie be kind rewind no it was this michelle gondry movie that had jack black and most deaf and the concept was that they worked at this video store um one day all the videotapes become erased um and they have to start renting out movies to people but they don't have the movies anymore so they end up just shooting the movies themselves Hmm. and uh so you know they shoot the movies themselves with you know cardboard and uh you know whatever they can find in order to <laughs> in order to make them. And yeah. so I did that with Radioheads no surprises. Oh, cool. Um, okay. Once. Because it's a pretty easy video to do, you know, it's like sure. Tom Tom York is in the uh he's doing in this like water torture sort of box and I I I put a piece of like blue Ziploc bag in front of my face as if mm-hmm. I was like going underwater. Um mm-hmm. and you know, like like you know just other stuff here and there on YouTube. And kind of, you know, little posts here and there on Instagram. But I, I like many people, got on TikTok mm-hmm. over the course of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was, it's, it's been a really interesting experience. TikTok is, TikTok is a very interesting environment. It is. Um, oh, yeah. Because it's, it's, like, it's like a living thing. It mm-hmm. is constantly changing. It is constantly in flux. And so I feel like so much of TikTok is kind of about TikTok itself. Mm-hmm. So much of it is um, people talking about their own experiences being on the app. At least, you know, that's what my, that's, you know, what my algorithm feeds me. But, you know, people are, people will ref- reflect on um, how their information is processed or I mean, I don't, I think they, I think TikTok has a habit of killing videos like this now, but you will see creators say, guys, like my videos are not getting the views that they used to, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, so there's, it, it changes, it really um, thins the fourth wall. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, and really cranks up the uh, parasocial um, 
nature of oh, yeah. uh, of being on social media or uh, being a digital creator. Mm-hmm. And I'd say that, you know, it, it can, like like most things, it can be negative, it can be positive. But, uh, you know, I just kind of started making some videos and some of them started getting a little more attention than uh, than I was expecting. And I'd say for most people who like do it, at a certain point, you'll get one video that just kind of blows up. And you're like, holy you know, holy shit, like, this thing's got, like, 200,000 views, like, what the, what the fuck just happened, yeah. and uh, I have a friend, a friend of mine, actually, like, when that happened to him, he figured out his formula, and has mm-hmm. been doing very well on, uh, on TikTok, yeah, and uh, for me, I, uh, for whatever reason, I, I can't seem to stick to the formula, which is like death as an online mm-hmm. creator. <laughs> I'm breaking the cardinal rule of brand consistency. So I've, yeah. uh, I, I've had some stuff that's gone, that's done really well. I've had, uh, I'd say recently I'm, I'm experiencing a lull. So if anyone mm-hmm. hears this and wants to, you know, just get on there and just crank that view count for me, that'd be really appreciated. Um, but at this point, I, I, I'm kind of glad that I experienced the lulls mm-hmm. because I don't like the idea of, inter- if you want to talk about performance anxiety, the idea of getting bigger and bigger and having more and more people expect a certain kind of content from you. And, you know, like that, yeah, that just makes me anxious. Like, I, I just feel like I wouldn't be able to express how I felt if I was only able to if if I was only known for doing one thing. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah. ADHD compulsions too. Sometimes you see something and, or you think of an idea and you just want to make it. So. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it's there for. So. Yeah. Um, could you like generally describe the kind of content you create for anyone who's never seen your content before? Oh man. I mean, I don't know. Like, I guess I kind of <laughs> think of myself as a shit poster in one way or sure. another. Like I'll just yeah. make like if I think of something funny, I'll do it. Um, I've had this sort of series of videos where I would find if I found something like a, a particular video, I would do edit uh, with mm-hmm. me playing guitar, and I'd say, "Well, you know, this is what this band sounds like." Um, and you know, sometimes that sometimes that goes really well, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but I'd, I'd say like the hardest part, the reason I haven't really been doing that uh, so much recently is that it is very hard to find uh, those videos sometimes. Because in order to like duet it so that you can actually say, oh, this is what this band sounds like, you need a video that doesn't have any background music, that is likely just a person talking, and a person has to be, I don't know, and you got to be in the mindset to actually go, oh, you know, that person is talking the way this band sounds, Hmm. you know? So Hmm. it wasn't, uh, there's one I did on, like I did one on Fontaine's DC, I don't know if you know that band, they're this like Mm -hmm. Irish post-punk band. And Mm -hmm. it took me like two weeks of scouring Irish TikTok to try and find the video (laughs) that that would do it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just like staring for hours, like just scrolling through is just kind of mind numbing. What is your For You page like? um, I don't know. Uh, Part of me just wants to open and tell you what it is now. I don't know, like... Cause it, cause it changes, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. uh, recently I got a couple, um, sometimes when you hit the for you page and part of me thinks, 
part like part of me doesn't know if it's just random and human beings are good at finding patterns or if there's incredibly complex algorithms that put you in certain sections of uh, viewership and oh you know we're gonna put you in uh because i came across like it's interesting when you come across the videos that are the worst takes Mm-hmm. And you and, yeah. and you like, oh, these are like these are the videos that I see people stitching. These mm-hmm. are the videos that I see people just like dunking on others. Yeah. Um yeah. so I don't know. I'd say some of the people I follow who I think are pretty talented, um, Rain Fisher Kwan, I think is is very smart and very mm-hmm. and has a lot of very interesting things to say. Uh mm-hmm. Lol Overruled. I, I forget that dude's name, but like he's uh, sort of another like leftist poster guy. Mm-hmm. Um, who else? Oh, there's this like comic from like, uh, I think he's, I think he's in Pittsburgh. Who's recently like really gone up. That is like very funny, dude. Oh, I forget cool. his name. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, uh, it, it is what it is, but like, you yeah. know, the whole point is engagement, right? So like mm-hmm. it can be stuff you like, or it can also, um, be stuff that riles you up. There's, there's this quote I love by this, uh, comedian, um, named Nick Mullen. And he, oh gosh, I wish I could, I wish I could find it. Cause he said it on his podcast, but, uh, mm-hmm. he said, imagine going back to like tw- 2005 and telling people like in 2020, you know, we'll just, we're just looking at our phones all the time, mm-hmm. you know, would someone, you know, and, and I'm, you can imagine that person would hear that and go, that's stupid. Why would we do that? Mm-hmm. And then you would have to say, no, let me explain. There are little words on the screen that make you very, very angry. And <laughs> there was no better way to describe it than, yeah. than, than me, uh, th- than that. So I, uh, yeah, I try, I, I don't know. I try to take it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, do you remember the first post of yours that gained a lot of traction? Uh, the one that gained the most mm-hmm. was, um, this is actually, this is an interesting one, actually. Um, okay. well, it, well, it's an interesting fact. So someone was playing Crab Bucket by Chaos. And I, I, do you remember that song? I don't. Oh. I'm also, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure how old you are. I am 25. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it might be okay. a little before my So, time. so I'm, so <laughs> I'm, I'm turning 30 in, uh, in like okay. a couple weeks. All so, right. yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm basically, we're not too far apart. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm basically dead already. <laughs> so, uh, Chaos's Crab Bucket was a, pr- was a really big, I'd say Canadian hit. And a person is, you know, posting, oh my gosh, I just remembered this song. And I stitched it because the, inter- like, I heard this on CBC Radio too. Like, there's a, the interesting thing about that song is that the concept of a crab in a bucket is that if you have a single <laughs> crab that is in a bucket, it, mm-hmm. it will crawl out on its own. Hmm. But if you have multiple crabs in a bucket and one crab tries to crawl out, the other crabs will drag that crab down. Hmm. They will not, you know, it's, it's like, you're not getting out of this one. You're here, mm-hmm. you're here with us. And do chaos. Do that? I, I, you know what? I think I had, I had to double check and I, and yeah. honestly, I can't remember. It's, it, you know, it's, I'm trying to think. Oh, it's, yeah. It's like lemmings, you know, like lemmings yeah. don't actually throw themselves off cliffs. Those were just a bunch of Disney nature producers killing as many animals as they could for entertainment. Jesus Christ. Yeah. But yeah. the, the crab in a bucket theory, l- l- for the sake of it, I'm not going to confirm it nor deny it. I'm just going to okay. say that was 
what inspired chaos to write crab bucket because he he Hmm. heard that theory and thought that's the canadian music scene like Mm. we don't want you as soon as you like start rising we're gonna start dragging you down Mm. and i i can't say that he's wrong about that i'd say that we we have a bit of a tendency to you know like if you're getting like if you're getting big in canada you know you you might not get the kind of respect (laughs) that uh, you would get if you were getting if you left Canada, got big in America, and then came back. Yeah, but I I mean like Mac DeMarco is kind of a great example of that. You know he mm-hmm. was he was in Montreal when two came out, and he absolutely ex- you know he was rising. Then mm-hmm. you know then moved to Brooklyn, put out Salad Days. Then currently li- now currently lives in Los Angeles. Yeah. Like you know we don't really have the uh, we don't really have the sort of entertainment infrastru- infrastructure or cultural inf- infrastructure to support people of that size. No. And we copy America in every other way. Why can't we do that? You know? Um, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of a, I have my own feelings about it. I mean, like this would have been, mm-hmm. this could be the segue into what I was initially going to talk about. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd say that the answer to what would improve the Canadian music industry is real estate. Hmm. Because real estate is one of the biggest industries in Canada, land, you know, and mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, you, we, we can talk about how there's currently a housing crisis right now. I mean, and a housing crisis is actually happening on a global scale. It's not exclusive to just Canada or the U.S. But one of the bigger issues that we have is cultural spaces and the the ownership and protection of cultural spaces. And mm-hmm. you can see that happen in Toronto with like you know, the silver dollar room being closed down. Um, I mean, the fact that the Elma combo is there is, you know, it's kind of nice that they're able to sort of fill in that gap. Um, but then, you know, you have all these other spaces, you know, spaces that support much smaller artists and support a sort of grassroots, uh, cultural, like cultural movement and cultural space, um, like, you know, DIY spaces and Mm -hmm. those spaces, you know, become harder and harder to come by in a place like Toronto when rent Mm -hmm. becomes more and more expensive. Yeah. So what I think the answer to that, what I think the answer to that is, is ultimately like it's protecting these spaces. And Mm -hmm. because like, because the cost of real estate is so high and artists don't have any money, um, it would be good to see, like better cultural programs that wouldn't necessarily be about funding individual artists, but just protecting the spaces that allow them to, uh, to collaborate, to perform, to, you know, exist. I agree. And the, the scary thing is that, you know, we keep losing these kinds of spaces, you know, what, what kind of culture is going to be created from, you know, a, a place where only, like those who can afford it are able to create culture. Yeah. You know, and, and like that, and that was my experience, like working for uh like I worked for a major record label, a major Canadian record label for like two years, uh, just as a graphic designer, did motion graphics and stuff. And uh, recently, I mean, like, I don't know. I, I like, I don't know if I can talk. I mean, I did, I guess I didn't sign an NDA. I worked for Warner. So, mm-hmm. um, while I was working for Warner, I believe I think it was the CEO left, like it went under new management. So there was, you know, all this discussion of like, okay, like what are we going to do? 
How mm-hmm. are we gonna? How are we going to sort of prove to Warner International that we should still be around? Because mm-hmm. that's sort of the 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 flavor of it. You know, it's like you got to deliver us a hit. And I didn't really see a lot of that happen while I was there. I'd say a lot of the artists that we, you know that we were trying to break, or rather, like they were trying to break, and I was making content for. Um, Mm -hmm. weren't necessarily hitting that stride. Mm -hmm. And I think about the Canadian artists that I, that we know that, that do break. Right. Yeah. And to me, I think that Mac DeMarco is kind of a lesson in DIY spaces and letting Mm -hmm. culture come from bottom up because Mm -hmm. the guy, because the guy became massive, but he was never on a major label. He was recording his own stuff. He was, you know, putting out his own material on Bandcamp and eventually got on captured tracks. But the idea that, you know, culture is going to happen sort of top down is an illusion. Culture, mm-hmm. c- culture comes bottom up. And if you can't yeah. respect that, yeah. and if you're not aware, and if you're not aware of that, Mm-hmm. then you you are you're just going to create dead culture. You're not going to create anything new. You're not going to you're not going to really innovate. You're not going to push things forward because you're only going to be able to respond mm-hmm. to these things. And usually mm-hmm. you're going to respond too late. So yeah. what I mean like this was my pitch for I said this to somebody and uh this was this would be my pitch for Warner if I was to be in a room with the CEO. It would have been okay what you should do <laughs> and I, I would i would probably encourage them to do this in more space in, in as many spaces as possible um you know probably probably spaces like you know in, in towns like you know thunder bay or sudbury north bay um you know even sault st marie like these places that are almost like cultural dead zones mm-hmm. it's like uh, you know no, no disrespect to any of those places but i have been there all i'm saying i've been there I've been there. Um, you want to be able to protect those cultural spaces. Yeah. And, you know, I'd say, I'd say in Toronto, it is very important that those spaces are protected. Um, mm-hmm. But the way you would do it, ideally, is that you would just buy a venue and you would own it and you would just hand it over to a, like, to a, like a local collective. And don't call it the Warner Music you know, like the Warner Music Shangri-La or whatever. You mm-hmm. just let the rumor mill know that this was mm-hmm. purchased by Warner for the sake of this. You don't use it to break Warner artists. You don't, you know, sign make artists sign contracts that if they perform there, they're, you know, exclusive to Warner Music. You just create the space that allows culture to grow naturally. You give them the garden and you let them plant the seeds. Mm-hmm. So I, of course, I, I said that to somebody and they're like, yeah, they'll never do that because that's too good an idea. But mm-hmm. I, you know, it be, because of ba- because basically what you're asking Warner to do in that instance is like, I need you to lose money. Yeah. Like I need you to just give away money. Yeah. And and no one would and no one would agree to that. But the only way mm-hmm. I think you're going to find the next quote unquote big thing is by letting the sort of collective and the culture from the ground up decide who they want to see as a performer. Because the because that's the other thing with um, 
uh, there's an interview. Oh, I forget that this is the guy who broke Dua Lipa, the guy who signed Dua Lipa and Warner UK. Like major labels right now are signing artists to break them, you know, because thanks to things like Bandcamp or like DistroKid, Spotify, you don't necessarily need a label for distribution. You don't need a label to pay for merch. You don't, mm-hmm. and and because I think so many artists are usually like interdisciplinary. Like, you know, I've always designed my own merch. I've usually done, I've done a lot of my own videos. I've done a lot of my own artwork. Like usually you, you think about wanting to have a hand in that process. So that's what you end up doing. But if your response to that change in the music industry is to just, okay, what are the kids like? Who do we find? And how do we put them out in the world with as much money and force behind them as possible? It's, I mean, you're really rolling the dice over whether mm-hmm. what you're going to put out is actually going to stand on its own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, like, I can't necessarily speak for any of the artists. You know, I don't want to call out any of the artists that I that, that were signed to Warner. But, you know, from what I could see, it's like, well... You know, these it's not that these people aren't talented, but how do you really know there's going to be a response? How do you really know that that people are going to respond to it if they haven't really had a chance to, you know, grow their following on their own? Mm-hmm. So what I I think the smart move forward is to just figure out ways to protect the spaces in which these artists can develop themselves and yeah. act as a act as some kind of force that um just maintains those spaces and protects those mm-hmm. spaces that allows people to foster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, this, this whole discussion and this topic that you've been, you know, researching and writing about um, that is for uh, school, right? Like you're in, um, you're in grad school right now. No, no, I'm actually applying. And this is, I mean, I haven't, oh, re- I haven't even go. really been researching that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, well, that applies to something different. So, uh, well, I, I, I recently applied to OISE, so that's uh, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at U of mm. T. And what that was kind of rooted in, at least what, um, not necessarily, well, this is, was, isn't what my, I wrote my SOI about, so, so that's my statement mm-hmm. of intent, um, mm-hmm. or what my research would be. This more relates to what my writing sample was, because I'd been outside of university for so long, I, I had to write a new, I had to create a new writing sample. So I had right. to, I had to write a 5,000 word essay. Which which I hadn't done in a while, but I, like I've I mean I've made one YouTube video essay, so like I I I know, I know how to write yeah. you know up up to, you know an eight thousand word script. So, sure. um, what that kind of connects to is this concept of innovation. So one of my first like how I got into doing animation as much like as much as I as I eventually did mm-hmm. was uh, like I won this competition that was put on by a company called Talent Egg that was for the uh, Chief Executive Council of Canada. They're now called the Business uh, the Business Council of Canada. Hmm. And they were talking about, you know, now that you're postgraduate, you know, how do you feel about the future of employment in Canada? Make a short mm-hmm. video. And I remember someone telling me, if you ever see a video making competition and you know how to make a video, enter the competition, you'll probably win. Most people mm-hmm. don't know how to make videos. 
So I did. What a bleak subject matter, though. I mean, like, the video, I mean, like, I can basically quote what the video was. Like, I said, yeah. you know, I'm postgraduate, and I graduated with a double major in theater and film and communication studies. And while oh, I work two jobs making burritos and pizza, I try to find job work in my field. So if you ask uh-huh. me, am I uh, optimistic about the future of employment in Canada? I say, well, I have to be. And that, that, mm-hmm. got, a, that got a chuckle from a room of CEOs. I just remember the guy who was the CEO of the keg. He had a head, like he was, he was- Oh, I bet he's lovely. Uh, well, I don't know. Like he was bald, but he had like that ring of hair. But he had like a- halo. Yeah, he had like a halo, but he, but he had like mm-hmm. a hot dog head. So we had this like <laughs> giant freaking chrome dome hot dog head with this halo. Like really long? I mean, it looked long because the halo was lower. <laughs> so it accentuated the length. I just remember that guy's goddamn melon. Um, Maybe that comes from eating a lot of steak. Yeah, probably. Too much red Mm. meat. Um, Mm. Yeah. So uh, through them, I like, you know, I I had some connections. I did some videos for the Business Council of Canada after that. And then I ended up working for the Rideau Hall Foundation, which was a charitable organization created by the the sitting governor general of the time, David Johnston. Mm. And um, it was basically, I got involved in this campaign that they were doing that was built around preventing what economists call brain drain. So brain drain (laughs) is when your high-skilled workers start emigrating to other places because you don't have the jobs for these people. And Mm. this being, you know, so many... I mean, Shopify is an example of this not happening, but so many Canadians that are, you know, talented in tech, they end up going down to, you know, Silicon Valley, like, you know, Oakland has all these tech jobs now. Yeah. So they were trying to prevent that from continuing to happen. Mm -hmm. And so they started this thing called Education for Innovation, which was like a learning module that was meant to be taught from like uh, kindergarten. There were, there were two. There was one from like kindergarten to grade eight, another one from grade seven to grade 12. Mm-hmm. And the the whole thing that they were kind of doing with, with this project was, you know, how do we create like an, an environment that fosters innovation? And how do mm-hmm. we retain the innovators that that environment fosters. And mm-hmm. I remember sitting in a room in Rideau Hall with His Excellency Governor General David Johnson. You have to stand, like, I, I don't think Canadians know how absolute garbage it is that we have to refer to His Excellency as the representative of the Queen, you know, stand at attention when the guy walks in the room Mm-hmm. And I'm like this, oh God, like, you know, I understand the concept of ritual. I get it. I get why it's important. But this is such bullshit, man. This is so fucking stupid. And it's so stupid. I know. Yeah. Abolish the monarchy. But mm-hmm. the the thing that I I personally felt at the time when they were talking about it is like, you know, how do we keep, you know, how do we keep the future, Cana- the Canadian innovators of the future from leaving the country? And I'm like, just just make the country livable. Just mm-hmm. make this a place where people want to live. Don't like, you know, it had this nationalistic approach of like trying to associate the Canadian identity with an identity of innovation. And while sure, you know, that, you know, Alexander Graham Bell or, um, yeah, you know, like plenty of indigenous, you know, innovations like the canoe or the snowshoe or snow goggles, you know, sure. Mm-hmm. There's, there's plenty of, you, you can do that. 
mm-hmm. but I don't really care about the past. I care about the environment that I'm going to be living in and raising my kids yeah. and yeah. and the kind of future that they are going to have, you know? Mm-hmm. And if so if your focus is just like based around nationalism, it doesn't it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I so there was kind of a connection to that with my writing sample and I I watched this uh, I watched like one of the lectures that one of the guys, the guy who initially hired me, his name's Tom Jenkins, he gives this speech at this innovation summit in uh, in 2013 in uh, Halifax. And one, oh man, I forget what this guy's, the one that the presentation right before him was Eric Grimson, who was the ambassador for MIT. Hmm. And he talked about how MIT is this great environment for fostering entrepreneurship. But hmm. I kind of chose to just use the term entrepreneurship as synonymous with innovation because yeah. it, it really it really is used interchangeably, you know? Mm. So, so how are we able to like foster these new ideas? How are we able to like, you know, take these very talented students? Cause it's MIT, right? Like they're already going to try and accept the best of the best. So how yeah. do we get these people who are already, you know, brimming with, you know, innovative possibilities to, uh, put that, you know, towards good use or, um, properly develop it or, I mean, and my thing is like ultimately channel it towards making money. And yeah. when you look at like what the qualities are, it's like, it, it's really simple. And what struck me is that Tom like commented on that presentation saying, yeah, the reason that these things are done is because it's true. So according to him, I, I don't know this offhand, but University of Waterloo, so like another big tech STEM focused university set up the exact same way. So Mm. you have these sort of like five different qualities. And if I can remember all of them properly, let me just, let me just check my notes. Um, So MIT has these like five qualities. And so it's, there's entrepreneurship, uh, intrapreneurship, co-located spaces, connections to the top research engine, or connections to the research engine and then their curricular structure as well. So mm-hmm. basically with entrepreneurship, it's built around encouraging like competition. And so, so they have this like hundred K it's a hundred thousand dollar grand prize that works in kind of like a shark tank style, uh, mm-hmm. format of like, yeah. you know, different business ideas, but that's ultimately encouraged. And the whole point of it is to just, get people together, get people talking, put them in an environment where everyone's kind of working towards all their different goals. Then you have like entrepreneurship, which is more about like internal development. And that will involve teaching students how to properly innovate within a corporate environment or within like a, within an environment where you're not the, you're not the leader, you're not in charge. I mean, they have, they flat out said that they have a charm school where they're literally teaching kids like how to speak within corporate environments. <laughs> I'm like, you know, this is how you're going to want to present yourself. I mean, it is, it is kind of amazing to think like they're, they'll flat out say, yeah, we're full of nerds. We're full yeah. of, you know, we're full of people who do not have the social skills of like a Harvard graduate, but goddamn, mm-hmm. man, those Harvard grads are making money. Like, you know, we need, come on, man, let's bring that alumni pool up, please. True. So, True. you know, and then you have connections to the actual research engine. So that's, that's mentorship. You have mm-hmm. them going out and like 
activating their ideas in the in the real world through like internships or placements. And then you have these co-located spaces. So this is actually what I think is really important. Um, you don't allow one space or one department or one discipline to, to own innovation. So the mm-hmm. spaces are distributed around campus. And that allows collaboration. That allows people to meet people from other disciplines, share ideas and understand, oh, you know, the the context, you know, what I'm talking about here applies to this context in a different way, in a way that I didn't expect because I'm not, you know, I'm not in this particular field. You know, my, you know, this the 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 chemistry work that I'm doing, I didn't know that it would apply to biology in this way. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the the engineering work that I'm doing, I didn't know that it would apply to um say I don't know a lot about STEM. So, I don't know. I didn't I didn't know the project I was doing here was 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 going to actually was going to actually do this. And then finally, mm-hmm. you know, you have the curricular structure. So the the way that the curricular structure operates is that like it's got it's built around the development of a company. So, you know, you have an initial like programs and stuff at the very beginning. So that's, you know, just when you're coming up with the ideas, you're ideating. And then as you go through, like as you develop it along the way, there's all of these things that will help you grow your project, grow your company, grow your business until you actually leave MIT. And at that stage, it's uh, what's known as the high growth period. And mm-hmm. Grimson is quick to point out, like at, at high growth, back away. You know, Hmm. you have, you have taught, I have taught you everything you need to know. Now it's time to unleash yourself upon the world, you Hmm. know? And I think that a lot of these ideas that he's talking about, I mean, you could talk about it from a sense of like empowerment and individuation from like a psychological perspective, you know, in a lot of these ways, these are the same things that like help people become mature adults, you know, Mm -hmm. and help people develop into, you know, fully functional uh, human beings. But my whole issue with this is that, you know, we're more than willing to provide the resources, space, time, and money when the ultimate goal is a business, but we don't really have any greater interest in doing that when it applies to something that does not fit the demands of capital. So, mm-hmm. you know, we don't, we're not really going to put aside that same amount of resources and space for something like humanities or arts you know, yeah. we're not really going to do that in terms of education on a more base level. Like, yeah, yeah. As, as you know, in Ontario, like the public sector is just getting uh, eviscerated under mm-hmm. this current government, which is a mm-hmm. is a goddamn crime. Yeah. Um, and the thing that I find is just so, I don't know, like like ironic and kind of sad is that it's Jenkins saying this stuff is true. So there's an acknowledgement that these are the that this is the way that you develop something that yeah. you develop a person or you develop an idea. But the idea that you would do it for something that, you know, isn't related to STEM, isn't related to business, isn't related to tech, well, then you're just losing money. Yeah. You know, you won't see a real return. Mm-hmm. But I'd say like a lot of the reasons that we're in the, you know, political climate that we are now is because we haven't invested in those things. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. people complaining yep. about like, oh man, like people are so bad at understanding misinformation online. It's like, yeah, like you, 
you didn't give people the tools to be able to properly discern misinformation. You just mm-hmm. gave all of the ability to spread information through, you know, to companies whose only interest was engagement and making money. So mm-hmm. what, so what did you expect? What, yeah. you know, the, you know, you, you, this is what you wanted and it's not working mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. How do you feel as a, as a working artist uh, in this industry right now? Oh, uh, geez. I mean, I don't know, man. Mm-hmm. Like I think about, I, I've never really been comfortable calling myself an artist and, you know, we can, mm-hmm. you can get into the whole ins and outs of that. I'm kind of starting to yeah. become a little more comfortable with it now. Okay. Because, because, I, because I think there was a part of me that always kind of saw it as secondary, always kind of saw it as a hobby. Um, and thought, yeah, you know, like, you know, don't, you know, like, don't put up, don't put all your eggs in this. Like, you know, you should do, you yeah. should do other stuff. Um, which is a symptom of the larger issues, right. Of, of yeah. it not being funded, if they're not being a, a structure to support it, it's all symptomatic of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would just say that like, as an, as an artist, like, I feel like I'd be really good at telling somebody what to do, but it would be flat out, do as I say, not as I do. Like, I, cause, mm. cause like I said, you know, like when I'm on, like being online the way that I am, I know I'm, I know what I'm doing is wrong. I, 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 I am fully aware that my approach to it is probably not ideal if your goal is to like hit a certain number of followers and, mm. um, you know, maintain that engagement and become mm-hmm. so consistent that you can eventually get to the point where you can make the big ask and you can you can make the pitch, which is yeah. you know, listen to my record, buy my merch, come see me live. I I, I, th- I see that as kind of the problem with TikTok. Like when people first get on it, they don't understand that it's primarily an app that's used to entertain. So you can't mm-hmm. just go out and post and say, hey, listen to my music. You really have to. You really have to draw people in and and establish a relationship with. You have to establish a relationship before you can actually get to the ask, get to the pitch. Oh yeah, and make the yeah. sale. Um. So, I, I I'm not necessarily. I'm not going to say that I don't want to make the sale. I'm mm-hmm. not going to because you know I I would. It, it always really touches me when people say that they hear my music or they see my work and it can and it connects with them. Like that's always very that's always really nice to hear. Mm-hmm. Although I feel like I just don't have the sort of brain worms that some of these more successful creators have because I just don't, sure. I don't know, like, yeah. you know, I, I just, I don't know. I guess I just like to cook dinner for myself and go to bed before midnight. Mm-hmm. You, you yeah. know, I know. Maybe, I maybe, know. maybe, I don't know, man, maybe I'm just lazy. Maybe, maybe I'm, you know, I should be taking this more seriously. That's all, you know, that always kind of goes at the back of my mind, but mm-hmm. I, uh, but also I, I, I don't know if I were to do that the way I, I am right now, that I would be, that I would be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. at this point, I just kind of want to make what I make and, mm-hmm. uh, hope that eventually people catch on to it or people like it. And if not, you know, it's fine. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm, st- I'm still going to make shit. Yeah. Have you seen any direct relation uh, from the content you create on TikTok and then, you know, the the streams that you're getting from your music? Have you have you noticed an uptick in that? I mean, I don't really pay too much attention to uh, to analytics. Sure. Um, yeah. Although it, I like it. The thing is, like, you never and you never really know what mm-hmm. it, it's impossible. Virality is an incredibly 
fickle and hard to chase thing. So there's no way of knowing if what you're going to make is actually going to connect with people. And you know, you, you can try, you know, there are certain things you can do. And I mean, I mean, that's, and that's why so much stuff on TikTok becomes, um, I was going to say like, that's why so much stuff on TikTok is in like a series of genres. So you, there's so many like, you know, podcast cut downs or there's so many man on the street interviews, you know, or, um, I'm trying to think of another example of this, but y- you know, people understand or at least creators understand that if I make a video that looks like this, like that will, that will draw engagement. So mm-hmm. I, I did one video where I was just like, you know, do you like this song? And it was just three terrible songs and then said, well, if you liked that, you were going to hate my music. Mm-hmm. And that actually got, that got a lot of engagement. And I was, I was surprised okay. too, because sometimes yeah. you get like, sometimes you make videos and they, they'll, they'll be kind of like sleepers. Like, mm-hmm. it, you know, it'll, it, it won't do particularly well, but then all of a sudden people will catch on to it and you'll get like responses and then it'll just boost. So I'd say that I, I feel like because that one actually makes a direct ask, which is kind of, it's almost unheard of. Like you don't really get that kind of response. Um, I, I feel like that one in particular did well, but TikTok is not about getting one video. It's about creating like honestly hundreds of videos and developing and developing a brand identity. So, you know, I, I, I'd say that there are people that I have met through TikTok that have connected to my music and enjoyed it, but, and, and, uh, or not even a, but just like, yeah, you know, I mean like that's the number one way I've been able to promote myself because of, mm-hmm. because of how it disseminates videos. So mm-hmm. I, I'd say if I'm getting any attention right now, it's probably because of that. Okay. Okay. But I can't, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say, you know, through quarter A and quarter B, we saw a 10%, yeah. you know, and then. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so like your, your content reminds me of someone uh, like Dev Lemons. Do you know Dev Lemons? Oh yeah. Wait, is she the, yeah. uh, what, music psych or something like that? Yes. Yeah. 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 She's, I mean, yeah, yeah. God damn, I see all these people and I'm like, God damn it. They're so freaking young. They're <laughs> I so know. young. I know. Uh, and then you see all these people that are doing the thing that you're trying to do and you're like, damn it, they did it already, you know? Um, yeah, I, yeah, so, there's definitely, yeah. I don't like, I think certain people are just kind of shameless about it. Like I think, yeah. like, I think some people are like, no, nah, like I'm going to see, I see what it works for other people. I'm just going to, I'm literally just going to do that. But then there's sure. also a part of me that's like, I just don't, I don't like doing that. I don't ick, you know, mm-hmm. I don't like doing that mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. Would you say that, um, so someone like Devil Lemons, like, um, you know, she got big on TikTok uh, through like, you know, music memes and, and getting in, you know, online music nerd circles and that sort of thing. And um, I, I I actually don't know if she had music out previous to blowing up on TikTok, but I know that she started releasing music when she did find that quote unquote fame on TikTok. Um, do you think that kind of marketing is a valuable tool for indie musicians? Is that something that you would aim for? I mean, that's kind of Um, what I've been, that's sort of what I've been doing really. Yeah. Like, and I think that this is also, I think that this has always been the case when it comes to music marketing and promotion. I think that Mm -hmm. like people, people complaining, it used to be about the music. I think we're probably never really paying attention. 
Oh, because yeah. it was it was really I think from the very beginning I mean ever since Beatlemania it has been about a relationship between the fan and the artist mm-hmm. you know and I'd say something like like social media really changed that na- changed the nature of that relationship because usually you were only able to com- to have that parasocial relationship through interviews magazine interviews or actually buying the record but now there's all these different channels where you can develop that relationship so mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, do they stream music? You know, are they are they a YouTuber? Are they responding to the comments? Are, you know, are you hearing what they have to say about this particular thing? I mean, you know, someone I'm definitely a fan of is Anthony Fantano. I think that he's, a, oh, yeah. I mean, like, the the he just seems like such a decent human being. Like, th- mm-hmm. there, I have, you know, like, seeing him, like, cry in multiple reviews that he has done. I'm like, <laughs> God damn it. Like, mm-hmm. this, this person... Just, just a legit person who cares about people and has yeah. an and, and seems to me has like a very solid sense of self. Like, is not mm-hmm. you know worried about chasing clout or anything like that. Is very responsible with how he presents himself online. You know, the idea of a music critic expanding, you know, what they do. I mean, it's it it's not like I don't. I barely watch his reviews now. Like, it'll mostly just be like his comments on whatever's happening in the industry or True. it'll be uh you know a meme that he made like yeah. or you know whatever i know this sounds so stupid but like the 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 drake beef between him with him <laughs> like was oh dude oh, that was incredible the dm that was absolutely oh my god masterful and like you know and i, I was incredibly to me it was an incredible and i don't know like i don't know if this is going to reveal more about me than fantano but to me it was an incredible show of class by him to not talk about his yes. wife at all when yeah. drake is like attacking him for being in an interracial relationship like yeah. that to me that that is very revealing about drake like that there's something really Absolutely. there's something really gross about that but the yeah. just the fact he's like i made him leak his own dms like oh, I, I managed to piss this guy off. Me, a YouTuber from I don't I, I don't know what state he lives in. Like a YouTuber from freaking Idaho, mm-hmm. pissed off one of the biggest like performers on the planet mm-hmm. by just trolling him and posting a vegan cookie recipe. Like that's mm-hmm. that is insane. Legend. Yeah. So, like, I think that there's always been that sense of a relationship between the fan and the creator that was outside of what that person creates. Like, I I think that was always happening. It's just now I think there's such, there's because there's so many channels and I think people are expecting that from their from creators. Now it like it, it it is taking more noticeable precedence because Mm -hmm. you don't you, because the idea being like the music would be presented first and then the personality would be, would develop but now it's switched because i think i mm-hmm. think you're probably going to, to to me the idea of oh this person seems really cool i like what they're doing that to me and i don't i don't even know if this can this can be backed up with any data that is that is the draw to hear a person's music in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways sure i can hear a mm-hmm. song and i'll like it but if i you know see this person is making cool stuff or i think what they're doing is really interesting like i i am more likely to check out their music because yeah. that parasocial relationship has been developed yeah. prior to uh, prior to hearing anything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I wouldn't I wouldn't discourage people from it. I would just say, um, 
if anything, I would just say, be honest. Don't, mm-hmm. don't present yourself as something you can't be. Yes. Yeah. Cause that'll, that, that yeah. shit will kill you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, touching on marketing again. Um, you know, you, you make a variety of content on TikTok. It's not just music related. You also post uh, a good amount of like social commentary stitches and like anti-capitalist stitches and that sort of thing. Um, how do you find your politics affecting your marketing? And now, you know, as a fellow anti-capitalist and socialist content creator, yeah. I find that sometimes, you know, creating, but also like creating um, with the hope of like monetizing certain work, um, it, it's it feels uncomfortable and obviously you know we are not uh we are not the ones creating the evil of capitalism quite obviously um but sometimes it's a bit of a it feels like a bit of a moral dilemma that's maybe a bit more self-imposed than anything Uh, but how do you navigate that i think about it from a perspective of uh well starting starting from the top I know the idea. I know what you mean in terms of like feeling anxiety about monetizing creative work, because I think mm-hmm. that we're also really used to uh, not understanding creative work as having any mo- monetary value. I mean, we're you know mm-hmm. we're the generation that grew up with like Kazad, Napster, and then Pirate Bay, right? Yeah. Like y- you yeah. know we're we're so used to not paying for content, and you know, uh, like I don't think I could have predicted streaming when I was when mm-hmm. I was young. I don't think I could have predicted mobile streaming. But, uh, you know, I, I do kind of think it's interesting, like, like, oh, yeah, like, I can literally just listen to whatever song I want, you know, when I'm on my, you know, when I'm on Apple Music, and I'm walking around, and that would not have, that would not have been able to have <laughs> happened, you know, uh, 15 years ago. Um, but I, I think, and it, it's also difficult, like, I grew up really privileged, so there's mm-hmm. also this sense where I can understand that people I know who are artists that did not, that have working class backgrounds, like I can understand that like for them, it's, it matters a lot more that they make money doing this. But I've been, yeah. but I've been able to pursue this from a relatively comfortable position. I mean, like when we were touring, you know, I was aware that I was asking people to take a lot of time out of their lives. They weren't going to be able to work, that it was going to cost them money. Like I, I tried to take care of people as best as I could. And then, uh, you know, I would usually pay for hotels. I would try to, I would just try to, um, I would just try to make sure everyone is as comfortable as we possibly could. And most bands at my level, like I would just try to say like, they're not touring like this. Like we're touring at the level of like, a, honestly, we were touring at the level of like a born ruffians, like, like, mm-hmm. a, like, a, like a solid Canadian indie band because yeah. I could afford it. Like, and because I knew that, you know, I just knew in my heart that if we were sleeping on floors, you know, every night waiting till 3 a.m. so the promoter can give us a place to sleep so we can sleep for two hours and then get in the van again, we would kill each other. Like, it, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's a true test of friendship and, and relationships to be on the road like that for weeks at a time, not eating much, not getting enough sleep, drinking a lot. So, you know, I, I guess I've always just tried to like I've always tried to like put other people first in that regard. So, and, mm-hmm. and, and in some ways you really, that, that, so in a lot of ways that becomes difficult for you because you mm-hmm. really do want to, I'm like, don't like quoting this person. I'm going to say who I'm quoting, but you want to pick yourself. <laughs> you want to mm-hmm. be able to say, this is what I'm doing. This matters. I believe in what I'm doing. And you know what? I, I've put a lot of time, my own money and effort into it. So I, I would like to be paid. So, yeah. 
you know, getting to that point and making the ask can be difficult. But I, I, I also know that given the way that the industry operates right now, I'm probably not going to make like a, a lot of money or any money doing this. So I'm just trying to accept that, that, you know, I've been able to make this stuff. I've been able to share it with people. I've been able to, in some cases, you know, touch people with the, with the art and the music that I've made. And I'm just glad that gets to be enough. Yeah. But you know, if you want to give me a check and put your show in whatever, you know, Netflix, Netflix new Netflix series is coming out, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think you have every right to. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and I, I also find that the other thing that pisses me off unbelievably about the how dare you question capitalism by participating in it is mm-hmm. just like, it's like, so what do you want me to do? Like, what do you, what do you expect? Um, yeah. Do you expect that the system that we're operating in to just be entirely above criticism, never question it, never under any circumstances, voice an yeah. opinion that goes against this yeah. thing? It's like... True socialists are homeless, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. No, it's like, a, <laughs> it's, you know, it's not, it's not a cult of poverty as, no. as, I, as I've heard it described. And yeah. it's, I mean, Frig, I had one video that like, like end up on what I'm going to call 14 year old libertarian TikTok. Oh, Jesus and it, yeah and it, you know so it's all these 14 year old like the this ugh. so it was a video about uh, a company called free water which gives away bottles of water for free because they sell ad space on the bottles and i just thought god damn it like you know there's discussions about making water a human right you know getting water to the people that need it and the answer to that is to just sell people's attention to advertisers so everyone wins you know and people and people saying like oh that they're actually doing something good like you know oh yeah they should have just changed everything they should have changed the whole system what are you doing it's like dude i i don't know like what are you doing that it it's always incredibly frust- you know it's incredibly frustrating to just say like you know like what aren't you guys like the free speech dudes like I'm just mm-hmm. not supposed I'm just not supposed to critique it at all, and no. uh, and and I and ultimately like it's this because that argument to me is basically like it's it's literally just shut up it's just shut up and go away it doesn't yeah. ca- it doesn't properly counter it it doesn't it no. doesn't defend the system it doesn't no. present an alternative it just says shut up and go and go away and I and I'm not trying mm-hmm. to like get riled up by fourteen year olds. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, you know, yeah. like, you know, I, I know you work at, I know you work at a Walmart in Mississauga, dude. Like don't TikTok from work. <laughs> I'm going to find you. But like, <laughs> I, it, it does, you know, it, it, it legitimately worry, it, wor- it, uh, it legitimately worries me a little bit because that argument isn't exclusive to them. It's, yeah. you know, it, it's repeated by people of all ages. So yeah, I, uh, I, I wonder how the I wonder how the conversation's gonna get moved forward and how other people are gonna, you know, start to realize that, you know, the problems you're experiencing are systemic. They're not just related to individual choices. They're they're a part of a larger structure that yeah. that adjusts and channels behavior uh in certain directions towards certain goals. Mm-hmm. I gotta say I'm not feeling great about the future of socialism. I mean, I'm I'm wondering about that too. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I think that 
under any circumstance, we're just going to have to deal with life. We deal with the concept of life finding a way. I think that people naturally are interested. Like, I think that people naturally are more accustomed to certain socialist ideas. And Mm -hmm. if you were to ask people like what kind of society they'd want to create, I do not think that the present society that we have right now would be anyone's like primary goal. I Mm -hmm. think that what we talk about. Yeah. I mean, it's funny when you watch like, videos of conservatives oh, there's this one video it was a channel five video and they were talking about like homelessness and they're ta- they're speaking to these like you know love channel yeah 5. yeah yeah they're speaking to these like blonde red-headed you know protesters saying like you know what how should they solve the homelessness problem and they just start describing a homeless shelter they just start yeah. they start describing it like a housing <laughs> like a housing project that would be available <laughs> and it's like yeah like literally i can understand mm-hmm. how i can understand how you don't have any concept of how this would be able to be done outside of the system that we already have. But what you're describing is in fact the solution. I, mm-hmm. I get very, I get, I get really frustrated with that. Although, and, and, and I don't know if this is what's going to happen because I think that the scariest thing is that when we see certain conservative commentators go like full mask off, people mm-hmm. don't really respond to it in the way that, you know, you would hope like, yeah. you know, especially with a club Q shooting with like multiple conservative commentators basically mm-hmm. saying this was like, this was going to happen because mm-hmm. you didn't listen to us and you mm-hmm. are now going to keep, Shibibo, yeah, y- yeah. Should be able coming out and saying that more, more are going to yeah, happen. More are going to happen because you're not listening, you know, like Which Matt, you know, Matt Walsh saying like, yeah. yeah, I mean, it is pretty crazy that he said like, how dare you blame, put this on us on Twitter, but then like I, I saw another one of his takes of just saying like, well, you know, if you understand how dangerous this is, and you're like, why do you keep doing it? It's like, whoa, whoa, man, like which oh, one is which one is it here? Which one yeah. is it? I'm a little con- I'm a little confused, you know? Like uh, so mm-hmm. you're not you have absolutely nothing to do with this disgusting anti trans rhetoric that calls these people groomers and saying they're after your kids. But also, mm-hmm. these people allowed this to happen to themselves because there are people out there who, for some reason, think that they are groomers that are after their kids. You know, it yeah. like I, I don't really know how that's gonna. I don't know how that's gonna be approached. And I think mainstream media is incredible. Like this was the fuck. You just got me ranting. You better edit the shit out of this because I'm gonna sound like a fucking lunatic. <laughs> but the the thing that I tried to, the thing that I'm like interested in and this is i'm this is what i was going to write this essay on mm-hmm. i find that the problem with like mainstream media is that because journalism has to be objective it allows for an implicit ideology to get pushed through mm-hmm. and you know the, the best example of it being climate change so you would have these p- news panels and i mean plenty of uh plenty of mainstream news panels would do this they would have a climate change science they'd have a climate scientist and then they'd have a denier they'd have a skeptic and so Mm -hmm. you would present the argument as like well you know it's no there's no agreement on whether or not climate change is man-made or not and and so and so it's just left up in the air and with cases like this the idea that there would be some kind of journalistic bias by just flat out saying this rhetoric is hateful. 
it is ultimately fascist rhetoric because it, it has an incredible amount of parallels to fascism and fascism can only mm-hmm. be defined as if it checks off enough boxes. Mm-hmm. I mean, Walsh literally describes himself as a theocratic fascist, which is meant to piss people off, but like, he's not kidding. He's literally like, mm-hmm. you know, he's not, he's yeah. not kidding at all. No. So when, you know, I don't know if mainstream media is going to be, is going to be capable. Cap- uh, I don't know if mainstream media is going to be capable of shutting these people down when they enter the main field. And that's what makes Pierre Polyev like so concerning because yeah. he is, he, he learned all the lessons that Derek Sloan ignored. He understood mm-hmm. how to present American style neoconservative populism to the Canadian public by actually addressing this the systemic failures. Mm-hmm. And the problem is going to be that because the left isn't presenting real effective responses to these problems, again, like the way this, the way public systems are designed is that they are designed to break. They're designed to be inadequately funded. They're only going to last for so long. And if they start working too well, kill them because what you're doing is taking away a space for the private sector to come in and expand the economy. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm his answer to the opioid like epidemic, which I, I don't know if you've seen this video is basically like getting rid of safe injection sites, getting rid of safe supply Sick. and, you know, criminalizing like addicts again, criminalizing. Yeah, that's addiction. always worse. Exactly. And it, you know, <laughs> exactly. But he's, but the argument is because, you know, Justin Trudeau's Marxist socialist heroin that's been distributed mm. willy nilly around Vancouver has failed. Mm that the solution is actually going to be criminalizing drug users again. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I, what I think is incredibly frustrating is that to, for mainstream media, like, you know, CBC to take an active stance on this would be seen as this huge, um, I'm trying to say like, it would be seen as a massive affront to objective journalism, but neoconservatives rely on objectivity because they mm-hmm. have to present themselves mm-hmm. as people who just speak facts as opposed to people mm-hmm. who have an ideology. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, and that's going to be the way that, and I think that if we act like nobody has an ideology or that only certain groups of people have, have ideology. So the left is always presented as having an idea, having an ideology, but everybody else is just neutral. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that we're probably going to be in trouble, but yeah. you know, un- until that, I don't know until that, I don't know if it's one of those, like not do anything until it's too late sort of things, but I'm just going to keep, I'm just going to do the best to live my life and help out, help yeah. people out the way that I, I see fit. So I know I that's, know. that, that's, because, that's really yeah. the, honestly, like the best thing you can do is just show up. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm hoping that can, I'm hoping that that can happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm going to jump into our ending questions here. Uh, get off of a depressing note. <laughs> we, oh, I'm having a um, ball. Yeah. No, it's I'm I I love I love talking about this. Um, but what Graham? What do you hate about what you do? that I can't stop doing it. Mm. I wish I could quit you, baby. 
Mm-hmm. What do I hate about what I do? That's a really great mm-hmm. question. I mean, yeah. it's, oh, dude. I mean, I remember saying this shit when I was in like, when I was 21. It's like your guidance counselor saying, wow, you're a creative person. You should, ex- you should explore music. <laughs> oh, man. Like, was that not a terrible thing to tell a 17-year-old kid? Just, mm-hmm. yeah, focus on math, dude. Um, what do I hate about what I do? I mean, if anything, you y- you just wish you could be a quote unquote normal person. You wish you could be happy and ignorant in some ways yeah. and wish that you didn't yeah. have to think about shit like this, that you didn't have to put mm-hmm. all of your energy towards something that you don't, you know, put, put all your energy towards unpaid labor. Uh, yeah. You know, you wish that you didn't have to, um, I don't know, just deal with a bunch of crazy you wish that you didn't have to become this person who surrounds themselves with a bunch of like emotionally immature, mentally unstable people who are also <laughs> make the only like the only other people making music. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm like I'm I'm turning thirty, and there's that sense of like sometimes when you hang out with people, and it's like you know the the young the young bucks start coming through. I I definitely get worried if I'm in a state of arrested development. I've met so many wonderful yeah. people doing music too. So obviously, you know, take that with a grain of take that with a grain of salt. But even I, I think anybody who makes music knows exactly what I am talking about. I mean, hell, like I, a friend of mine once said, like she made this TikTok saying, you know, I, I'm dating this guy. You know, he's uh, he's tall, he's handsome, he's a musician, totally my type. Here's the red flag. And I'm like, what the fuck do you mean here's the red flag? You just said he was a musician. Like, that's the red flag. <laughs> the red flag is always musician. Oh, every time. Every single, every single time. I don't, I wouldn't date a musician. <laughs> I like, I don't know, have you met me? Like, it, it is what it is. So, um, mm-hmm. if anything, yeah, if I can say, what do I hate about what I do? It feels like I wish that I had, uh, I, I hate that I'm stuck. I hate that I have ideas in me that just beg to come out, that refuse to stay inside. I hate that I'm driven uh, to... I hate that I'm driven to create things that... I hate that I can't quit. Mm-hmm. That's it. That mm-hmm. That's ultimately it. I hate that I can't quit. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what can we do? And we is up to you, whether that's society, whether that's Canada, whether that's people on the ground what can we do to fix that i really don't know i really yeah. I, I really don't know because uh, like if because now like when i hear that question i i immediately think of policy and i think mm-hmm. i am not the kind of person that you should be asking about designing policy because mm-hmm. if i think of something like ubi you know the, the problem with ubi is i like to say ubi offers you a bigger slice of the pie but what you really deserve is a seat at the table mm-hmm. um I think that if you really want to allow artists to better contribute to uh, Canada's cultural landscape, I'd say you just have to allow people the space to make art. And you can't make rent so high that people have to always be working. Or Mm -hmm. you, you can't allow... certain companies to become the arbiters of culture 
and and start dictating where uh, culture is found. And mm-hmm. I, I, you know, these these are really these questions become really difficult because I don't like the idea of a policy arbitrarily deciding, you know, that we're not going to have TikTok anymore. We're only going to have like a government, a, a nationalized government sp- sponsored app that people, yeah. you know, that people are exclusively allowed to use. Although I would be particularly interested in that happening if it w- uh, if it was de- designed as free open source software that people were allowed to like, you know, so, so like, you know, all the bits, all the bits are fully open for people to look through design and, and moderate something like open office or VLC uh, signals, another example of this. And mm-hmm. if it was done in a way that wasn't built around like mining data and selling and the selling of data, like the one thing that I do like about signal is like, it, it, it's like Wikipedia. It's like, just donate $5 or whatever at, at a certain point, And we're not going to sell your data. We're not going to sell advertising. This is how we, re- this is how we retain independency. And the, you know, the only problem with that is that because you're not mandating uh, a donation, you know, a, you know, cause if it was mandated, I imagine it would be like, what, like $2 a year or something like that. If every single person who used Wikipedia <laughs> were to, mm, you yeah. know, so yeah. it, you know, it, it would have to be mandated. I mean, like those are, I think ultimately, like if you really want to support art, you just like MIT, you need to build the environment that's going to support it. And mm-hmm. I think the reason that's probably not going to happen is because human beings are inherently creative. It doesn't matter what kind of mm-hmm. environment we're in. We're going to make it. We're going to make art no matter what. It's just what kind of art do you want to see? How far do you want it to go? And who are the people that you want to make culture? Who do you want yeah. who do you want in charge of where culture is going to go? Is it going to be, you know, the people who have the money uh, and the resources and the time and the access to cultural, you know, cultural channels and the the way that we disperse information? Or do you want to allow for the people who are on the ground? Mm-hmm. And I'd say right now with, you know, the, we do have things like, you know, the phone, the channels like Instagram, TikTok, et cetera, have really opened up and, and democratized it in, in some ways. But I mean, if you really want to ask who's benefited the most, it's them. It's TikTok. Mm-hmm. It's like it, when, mm-hmm. when people ask who benefits, I'm just surprised they don't say like it's TikTok who benefits. It's Instagram who benefits. Mm-hmm. It's not the people. There's a great line. If the people who made money in the gold rush weren't the people who struck gold, it was the people who sold pickaxes. Yeah. So I I don't know. I would just love a free um high quality nationalized pickaxe. Yeah. 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 And uh Graham, what are the things you love about what you do? <laughs> You're going to have so much fun editing this shit. I sound like a goddamn loony. Um, <laughs> no, you don't. You've been I great. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love how it's been a place for me to go where mm-hmm. I don't have to be anyone else but myself. And mm-hmm. I can put 
all the things I want in this place. And I get to build the world I want to see in this place. And I get to paint with all the colors I want in this place. And that's mm-hmm. ultimately why I'm always going to keep making things. Like that's mm-hmm. that's always that's always going to be the main driving factor. And yeah. I I guess that's like a little selfish because I'd say the greatest achievement I've ever had in my career was that a good friend of mine walked down the aisle to one of my songs the day they got married. Aww. And oh, that's yeah, and, and to me that knowing that happened literally makes everything worth it. Just, mm-hmm. just to know that there's a moment in someone's life that I got to be a part of through that is li- it, it's enough. It's, it, it, mm-hmm. it makes, it makes everything, it makes everything worth it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy that I get to touch people in the way that a lot of songs have touched me and that a lot mm-hmm. of great art has stuck with me and mm-hmm. uh, got me through or made me laugh or made me smile or made me cry. So mm-hmm. that, that that's the thing I love the most is knowing that I get to, I, I can give back in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, this is super cool. And I love chatting with you. You're a great talker. So thank you so oh. much. Yeah. And um, what, uh, what are you working on and what can we look forward to seeing from you? So uh, I do have some uh, singles coming out. I have a song coming out on December 7th uh, called said something. I have an mm-hmm. album coming out on, uh, Oh geez. I forget if it's January 23rd or 27th, uh, but I have my album uh, full length album heavy. Uh, is going to be coming out. I have another album that I'm going to be putting out after that called uh, Super Reverb, which uh, I also recorded in 2019. Um, it was mixed by Graham Walsh uh, from Holy Fuck, and he's uh, he's also mixed like uh, he mixed like the first like Preoccupations record as well. So I was really happy to mm-hmm. be able to work with him. And uh, after that, I don't know, man. I also, oh, and I also should say, if anybody makes it all the way through, I'm going to be playing at the Baby G on December 18th in Toronto, Ontario uh, with Spirit Desire and Angel Apricot. It's a Sunday Ooh. night, uh, free to anyone who would like. So yeah, come on out. Amazing. Well, again, uh, everybody who's listening, you should go find Graham online. Let me scroll up and try to find that information there. <laughs> Let me see. Yeah, just uh, uh, just Graham is tearing up on instagram and twitter all one word and i don't know however we'll see how see how much longer i'm on twitter it's just graham tearing up on twitter just graham tearing up okay yeah i tried to look you up there and i yeah it's it's a word word count limit yeah Uh, yeah uh, so it's graham is tearing up on everything else but like hopefully i won't even have to be on twitter anymore that's the thing i mean yeah, I, I'm just on there out of habit right I, now. Honestly, so. like I just I don't know. I I, I deleted it off my phone, and it's kind of nice. Yeah. It's kind of nice to just not. I mean, like Twitter. Twi- oh, what is it? Like the reason Elon Musk buying Twitter has been good is because mm-hmm. he made himself the main character of Twitter, and the best part was he owned it too. So we got to make fun of the guy who owned the website the guy who everybody knew had just spent billions of dollars to purchase this thing only to get clowned on in absolutely incredible ways 
And I don't know what the future of the website is going to be. I think it's probably just yeah. gonna, honestly, I think it's probably just going to end up to be a weirder version of what it was. I think that be, I guess. Oh, well, honestly, like I think that's what's I think it's what's yeah. going to happen. I think it's just going to like revert. I'm literally just talking at this point. Like I just think that I think I, I think fine. that Twitter is just going to like revert back to the state that it was in. Like uh Sean, hmm. uh he's like a I know people some people don't like this term, but he's a, he's like this really good bread tuber. Um and mm. he made the comment yes. like Elon Musk, like so many people, did not realize that Twitter was built the way it was because it was profit driven. He thought it was idiot. Mm. He thought it was ideological <laughs> that all these you know right wing voices were getting silenced. And it was like, no, dude, it's because you can't let these people say this shit, or else you're gonna lose advertisers. Like that's why. And now that he's realizing, oh crap, I need to make money he's going to end up reverting Twitter back to what it used to be because even though it was barely it like, I don't know, it hardly ever produced revenue or turned a profit. Like it, it was still the, it was the best possible way in order to bring advertising dollars in. Like, I, I don't know, like the, the yeah. ideal situation with, with the, the perfect situation for Twitter would be all right. Like we totally fucked up just, you know, pay, pay this much money per year to use it. We will no, we will no longer sell your data. It's, you know, it's open source. Like anybody who wants to contribute now can, because I mean, so many of the people who are contributing the most are now out of a job. And, know. you know, we're not going to let, you know, and, and we're going to allow Twitter to be run, you know, democratically uh, by allowing mm. anybody who pays to have a voice on the way, you know, content will be moderated you know, the idea, like everyone, everyone will pay like, you know, one, $1 or $2 or whatever. So that, you know, so that everything can be supported, they can pay for servers, et cetera, et cetera. And then people would mm. like vote on like how it would be democratically moderated, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I don't know how that would mm. work, right? You know, you could just have a billionaire, like, you know, Musk or whatever, buy as many accounts as possible and just like botnet, yeah. botnet their way in order to shape it, in order to shape it, you know, like, cause you know, but that would, to me, that would be good. That 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 would be if, if something like that happened. I, th I think that would be good. But I really don't think. I don't know. I don't think we'll see that happen. Yeah, yeah. And you don't think it's going to go bankrupt before? I mean, that would be uh, so really fucking anything. cool, man. I mean, like I did, <laughs> dude. Okay, so I made a TikTok about this, and I I actually mentioned somebody yeah. that I used to work. With. I mentioned this to someone that I used to work with. I think I lost my job at Warner because I said I wanted to guillotine and Elon Musk during a week during a oh meeting. Oh my god! Because my my well, like it. my boss was a fan, dude, and he would bring him up Ew. regularly. He'd say, "Oh, did anybody see Elon this weekend on SNL?" Like. Oh, 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 he brought up that? Oh, yeah. Or he's oh like, oh, God. what's all in the news? Oh, what's all Elon up to? Like, he would bring Elon up Elon multiple times. And I think he was Ew. talking about how he wanted to get Starlink so that he'd have better Wi-Fi at his cottage. And I just and I just said, I cannot wait to put that man's head in the fucking guillotine. And he just goes, whoa, tell me how you really feel. I'm like, he's a grifter, Jeff. He, like, grew up on apartheid emerald money. He once took the emeralds from his family, took them down to Tiffany's, sold them at a massive loss. He stole Tesla from the founders. He also went to Queens University, so automatically I hate him. But, you know, like, I, I, I just couldn't do it. I'm like, man, like, how do you not, how are you so, like, cut off from the fact that there is 
mountains of legitimate criticism against this guy. And in fact, actually the best thing I just read, this was a Tumblr post. I don't know if you saw this, Mm -hmm. but someone who Mm -hmm. worked for SpaceX talked about what it was like to work with Musk as a CEO. And I believe this Mm -hmm. fully because this is the exact same shit that you see with artists, like within a record label. And that's, I mean, like the same, it was the same thing with Kanye West. Um, Like there will be handlers, people who have egos so powerful, they are virtually disconnected from reality will have to have people that manage their relationship between them and the world around them. I mean, like Mm -hmm. there was, Oh man. Like when Kevin Smith talked about like working with Prince, like the exact it's the, it was the exact same thing, you know? Hmm. Um, and the way he described SpaceX was, yeah, like there was a very much a company culture of like Elon won't, Elon won't like that. So don't do it. You know, like he wanted us to stay late and constantly be working. So like, I mean, people would just look busy. Like one guy apparently said he had like a matrix style, like image on one of his screens of code. So that like of code that was constantly like repeating. So it just looked like he was working the whole time. Oh my God. The guy said like, what is interesting right now is that he's now in a work environment where he doesn't have those handlers. So there are going to be yeah. people who don't know how to handle him and handle his relationship to the employees. So mm-hmm. he, he basically he's saying like that's probably what that that could be the reason why it fails because he's never right. had to run a company like this before where people, <laughs> you know, where the people who were involved weren't particularly interested in maintaining his image or rather he got rid of all of the people that could have been interested in that mm-hmm. so yeah man it's it's de- it's delicious to watch i i mean oh, if yeah. anything i if anything and i and i and i really like the best case scenario for this is that like the same thing like with like Matt Walsh and Shapiro going mask off, although I really don't know if this is going to happen. It's that this is going to be the right kind of blowing their load. Like this, this, yeah, like this is going to be like, they are, they've been given all of the tools. They've been given the keys to the kingdom and all of a sudden the house is on fire and they cannot blame any. And and, like, they're going to blame everyone but themselves. But I really hope Mm -hmm. the majority of people are going to watch it and go like, yeah, no, like you, you set this on fire. You, you know, yeah, they lit lit the match, you poured the gasoline and we, we were supposed to trust you this whole time. And now, you know, now the bill is due and you're saying it's not your fault. So I, 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 I think that, I think that could happen, but Again, you know, if uh, if if mainstream media constantly relies on objectivity, they'll have to take whatever these assholes say at face value, and they'll just yeah. have to keep repeating their line because mm-hmm. you know it's responsible journalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that always tends to happen with extremists is that you know they burn themselves from the inside out. Yeah. Um, but it's just how many people are they going to take down with them? Yeah. You know, that's yeah. The I mean, like what well, there was a take on, it was someone from young Turks actually who uh, had mentioned, Yeah, I wonder if Elon is doing this on purpose because he understood how powerful Twitter was as a tool for organizing. So if mm-hmm. he gets rid of Twitter, I mean, you know, there'll be other places, but it took like decades for, yeah. you know, certain people 
to gain the followings that they did and, you know, spread, you know, messages of socialism or, uh, you know, mm-hmm. different progressive ideas. And now he just yeah. got rid of it. So, yeah. you know, what, where are these people going to go? I mean, I got a Hive account. Yeah. <laughs> I got, you got I, a Hive I, account? I, I went on Hive. I mean, like it, it, mm-hmm. it's clear they were not ready for this many users to come on. Like they don't have the server yeah. space. It's a, it's very buggy. Um, Mastodon yeah. seems to be like a bit of a letdown just from what I've been hearing about it. Um, mm-hmm. w- which is upsetting because, you know, it's free open source software. Um, but mm-hmm. I think that, I don't know. I think that like the gap that Twitter might leave, it, it could, I don't know, like it, it could be good to see like lots of different like, um, apps and ideological pockets. And then because people are going to people, people, we need, we need like a common narrative, and that was kind of that was the good thing about mainstream media is that there was a common narrative and people were able to have a sort of a collective understanding of reality. So if you know, so maybe the proliferation of apps and the proliferation of bubbles might actually force people to be frig like I need to be able to tell what's going on around me. I, I yeah. might actually I might actually have to develop, you know, we might actually have to develop some kind of common narrative again. I, I, again, but like, who knows? And I, you know, yeah. this is all it's all kind of wishful thinking. Yeah. I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I guess we will. I guess we will. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again, Graham. Um, I, this is really fun. And uh, I'd love to have you on again because you're a great talker. And um, appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you ever want to, I mean, like, this is just an aside. Like, yeah. I've always kind of thought about doing podcasts and shit. Yeah. So if you ever wanted to, like, work on something. I mean, you you were gonna have to get me to shut up. You were gonna have to stop me talking. <laughs> I'm gonna have to interrupt you. But yeah, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. But if you ever wanted to, like, if you ever wanted to, like, work on a pod together, I'd be. I, I don't know. Fuck. I don't know if I'm, I'm. If I'd be stretching myself. But like, I'd be very. I feel. Oh fuck. I feel bad saying this. It's like I'm really good at doing lots of things, but I just need to sort of get in on someone else's project that they've already spent the time building up. Yeah. And working on, and then you know. No, I agree. Take, you can only stretch yourself so thin. Like. Yeah, and then you know, yeah. take it, and then you know, take take all their hard work and just like claim it for my own, and <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, ugh. I, w- I wouldn't, I, you know, obviously I wouldn't want to do something like that, but I, I feel, I, it's definitely something like I tried to do a pod a while ago, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it didn't last for very long. What was that based on? If, uh, I was going to be a Canadian politics thing. Me and yeah. my buddy, me, I mean, I don't know if you're ever a Chapo fan, but like my buddy and I both really got into Chapo, right? Um. And what was the one thing? Oh, yeah. And then, like, this is sort of my pitch for a podcast right now. It's called Revisiting History. Hmm. It's probably a better title. And it would just go to, like, Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History and just start taking apart, like, it episode by episode because I definitely fell out of love with that guy at a certain point Mm -hmm. just listening to him. He's also from, like, Elmira, Ontario, which is 20 minutes away from where I grew up. Oh, cool. Which Yeah, which is particularly interesting. Hmm. But... Oh my God. Like his last book talking to strangers was basically his like, Hmm. it was, it was a big L liberal response to black lives matter. And it was very like, there, there were moments I'm like, Oh, Oh boy. Oh boy. (laughs) Oh, you know, and, 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 you know, I think I I do take some of the information there are certain things that I would agree, uh, that I would agree with him. Yeah. But like that, that he says, but like, it's incredibly fucking frustrating to just see someone come 
so close to the point mm-hmm. and then just walk away from liberals. it. Liberals. Yeah. Yeah, fucking <laughs> liberals, man. They're the worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that would be it. Like, so just go through it episode by episode and say like, all right, like, so this episode of Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History, he talks about this and we're just going to explain where he's wrong yeah. on this, this, and this. I would totally listen to something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you ever, if you have, yeah. So if you ever wanted to, if you ever wanted to take the time, like, yeah, we could, we could maybe talk about something like that. I'm very interested. I will hit you up about that. Okay. Alrighty. Well, I hope you have a great night. I hope you had a good time here. I had a great time. Amazing. Here. Uh, yeah, it'd be great to, I don't know, it'd be great to hang sometime. Cool. Totally. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm in the hammer, but, um, you know. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I am. Yeah. I'm actually headed that way tonight. Oh, cool. Um, my, my brother's in town, so, uh, like, well, my, my mom's in Dundas. Yeah. So. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, um, not to drag this out even further than we have already, but I did see in your Spotify bio that you used to live in Hamilton. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like I went to Mac and then I stayed for another two years. So I lived in a few, I lived in a few places, mostly in the West End. The furthest East I ever got was actually, was on James. It was James South right across from the hospital. Yeah. And that was the last time I lived in Hamilton. Yeah. And I have, I have nothing against Hamilton, but I'm not going back. (laughs) Like I just, I just spent too much time there. Oh, absolutely. It's, um, uh, you spend enough time here, you get some ghosts and then they never leave. And then, uh, yeah, it's like, it's such a small town, it is. man. Yeah. And like Toronto is like that too. Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, like, especially with like certain bars and certain pockets, like, like within, yeah. you make friends in a certain cultural scene. It's like, some circles. Uh, yeah. 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 You'll, you'll just start seeing the same people. Absolutely. But yeah. I, I don't know. I've, this, like, I, I only started living in Toronto in 2017. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to, I kind of just want to stick around. Yeah. And just make it feel like a home. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I love Toronto as well. So love both cities. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much. And I guess we're gonna wrap this up. Um, everybody, Alrighty. go check out Graham. Um, listen to his music. Check out his Please. TikTok. Give me money. Do it all. All right. Well, you have a great night, dude. And I'll talk to you later. Alrighty. Bye bye. Bye.